Hey everyone, welcome to our DevOps office hours. It's September 21st, 2022. My name is Eric Osterman and I'll be leading the conversation. I'm the founder and CEO of Cloud Posse. We are a DevOps accelerator, which means that we help companies who want to own their infrastructure to build it in record time. And along the journey, your team will get leveled up on how to build modern infrastructure with Terraform and all the design decisions that go along with that. So to hire us, head over to cloudposse.com slash quiz. Again, that's cloudposse.com slash quiz to book a call with me. For those of you new to the call, the format's very informal. My goal is to get your questions answered today. So feel free, feel free to unmute yourself at any time if you want to jump in and participate. If you're tuning in from our podcast or YouTube channel, you can register for these live and interactive sessions by heading over to cloudposse.com slash office hours. Again, that's cloudposse.com slash office hours. We host these calls every week. Our call today is recorded. We'll automatically post a recording of this session to our YouTube channel when the automation works. So if you enjoy the content and want to support our channel, please hit those like and subscribe buttons. Uh, just head over to youtube.com slash cloud posse. Again, youtube.com slash cloud posse. Cool. So uh, a lot of exciting little projects uh, came by my inbox this week. I want to bring those up. Starting with just a reminder, HashiConf is happening beginning on of October, October 4th through 6th. In Los Angeles, if you are there or plan to be there, hit me up. Um, I'm going to be there all days and be great to meet up with our community. Next announcement is, lo and behold, 1.3 has finally shipped. We've been uh, announcing every alpha and pre-release um, uh, along the way here. But now it's official. So you can officially have uh, objects with optional parameters and defaults, which will uh, simplify the interface for modules dramatically and clean up uh, a lot of our modules and other things. So hit uh, check that out. Any other uh, any other things to call out? I mean, we've talked about 1.3 so much now, I don't want to labor the point, but anything else? I think the only thing there just to be aware of is obviously as you upgrade your modules for doing all those, those will be breaking changes because that syntax is not supported in previous versions of, <laughs> of Terraform. Right. Yeah. So, so they will not be backwards compatible with other 1.x releases. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, next announcement is just a small little thing I saw. Um, KubeCuddle tree. Uh, it's a way to visualize workloads uh, running inside of Kubernetes. It's just a, another KubeCuddle plugin that you can install. And I thought that was kind of interesting way to get a little bit more information so you don't have to juggle between uh, deployments, replica sets, and pods, for example, to get the output. All right. Next announcement was a, <laughs> a post by McChaffee. I thought that was funny. Um, or McChaffee. <laughs> funny uh, riff on McChaffee. Um, some tips on hardening Kubernetes um, and prescriptive recommendations uh, that you can follow. Just uh, sharing that in the Office Hours Slack. Um, as you all know, we are uh, big proponents of Spacelift as a GitOps platform. 
predominantly for Terraform, but these days it supports Ansible, Terragrunt, and other tools as well. Um, a difficulty working with honestly every SaaS out there, whether it's like GitOps, um, but even as simply as like if you're using GitHub Actions or if you're using um, I don't know, uh, rebrandly to do redirections or something. These services are always lacking in telemetry and monitoring. So what's cool about this is that Spacelift has come out with an exporter for themselves that you can use to scrape uh, metrics out of Spacelift. And if you're using Datadog, for example, and not Prometheus, that's fine because Datadog can also leverage uh, uh, Prometheus exporter uh, data. I forget what the open standard is, but there's some open standard that's backwards compatible that it works with. Yeah, I think so, it's just op open to uh, tel telemetry. Jeez, open telemetry. Yeah. yeah, I think that's what it's called. So then with something like that, this is nice because now you can have control over like the factors that cause your spend to go up or down on Spacelift. For example, if you're using public hosted uh, runners, you're billed per minute. So you wanna have an idea of how many minutes you wanna spend uh, on there. It's also highly relevant because, well, I mean, if your Terraform plans are going up, 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 up in time to uh, plan or apply, that might be also helpful to know if you have other systemic problems or you introduced something in your modules that now suddenly uh, makes them take that much longer to deploy. Like we care about all that in our applications and the, 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 um, the technology to do that's been around for a while. Being able to do that now with infrastructure's code and with Terraform, I think is also valuable. Obviously this is not gonna tell you where in your code uh, the slowdown happened. Um, somebody else, we talked about that previously on office hours. It would be interesting to get open tracing visibility into Terraform itself to understand where the, where the time is spent in Terraforming. Uh, anyone already kicked the tires on this for Spacelift? All right. Next, uh, next one is just something that came across my email box. I was, uh, oh, that's weird. I, I uh, saved the wrong uh, link here, unfortunately. Anyways, uh, the link that uh, I was following was an issue uh, for deep merging capabilities in uh, Terraform core. And that was closed as uh, won't do. So if you've been holding out hope that deep merging in Terraform core was going to be available, uh, you can stop holding your breath. Instead, uh, shameless pitch, this is where I go into Cloud Posse's uh, provider ecosystem. You can go to Terraform providers, uh, utils, not AWS utils, but utils. And if you were waiting on Deep merging, uh, we support deep merging in uh, in our provider here. So here's an example, two YAML files and uh, loading those in. Note that we do the deep merging as strings and that's how we get around a whole bunch of complexities dealing with objects in Golang and Terraform providers and so forth. Uh, we leverage the merge go library uh, which is the one of the best libraries we've come across for deep merging.
Mm, all right. So this was interesting. Uh, Weekly TF is a great newsletter to follow, by the way, Anton Babenko's newsletter. Um, yeah, he always find he always digs up interesting things. I don't know where he gets them from, but he digs up interesting things. Uh, this was one called TF Auto Move. Uh, it's a little Golang utility. It's something that honestly should probably just be in the Terraform core once it gets uh, more popular or tested, but it's able to generate the moved blocks for you by examining uh, the plan and translating the resources based on names and attributes that line up. So it's optimistic. It's not gonna catch everything, but it's gonna try and catch as much as it can to create those moved blocks for you. Uh, for those of you unfamiliar with the moved blocks in Terraform, this is how you can do refactoring uh, of your modules or root modules to uh, move state around, for example, into child modules. Uh, the one thing you can't do, because I know Matt Calhoun just looked into that this week, is you can't refactor uh, using move blocks across Terraform state files, which is too bad, because often when you do refactoring, you're actually moving state into smaller root modules uh, for efficiency. Anyways, this will help you with the refactoring within a module. And next, anything to add to that before I move on? All right. All right, so the Terraform wrappers don't stop. Can't stop, won't stop. Um, Terraform, uh, TerraPlate is a, uh, is a um, I don't wanna say fresh take, it's a retake of templating in Terraform. Um, it is somewhere in between, you could say, Terra Grunt and Terra Mate, uh, two other Terraform tools, uh, where this one is optimizing specifically on the templating experience within Terraform. So, uh, you know, CDKTF exists uh, to, for, I guess, other reasons. CDKTF exists to bring a, a native language experience to Terraform for, for teams that want to not venture into a new uh, DSL like Terraform. Uh, but it also solves the issue that you need to generate sometimes Terraform code. Terraform modules can get pretty complicated and uh, we they get complicated because you try to solve every kind of use case and a, common pattern when your Terraform modules just exceed the limits of Terraform is to just generate the Terraform code itself. So first, <laughs> okay, I'll talk about this tool and then we'll talk about templating and Terraform and my thoughts on that. But so TerraPlate, what it's doing, they have a nice little examples folder here. And you, if you jump into, um, Let's see, complete, was that it? Terraplate, HCL. Uh, this was not the one. Where was the example I was looking at? Tutorial, ah, that's why I was looking at tutorials. So here's a sample uh, Terraplate um, that would generate a backend. Um, they're loading in a, a template file. 
So you see that at this stage, it is HCL you're actually writing. You're not writing Golang templates yet. Uh, so that's why it's similar to TerraGrunt and TerraMate in that uh, they're leveraging HCL as a way to define your uh, templating strategy. And then if you go into templates and uh, backend, for example, here you see um, the template, which is actually not leveraging any templating at this point. So not, maybe not the best example of a template there. Let's see, local prod main. Yeah, so looks like they're actually using possibly, are they? Because I, I thought it was using Golang templating, but this is actually just pure Terraform code there. So I don't know. Um, so my thought on templating in Terraform is that the problem when you start doing too much templating in Terraform is that you are A, writing code that will never leave your company's kind of premises uh, barrier. that. Generated Terraform modules, generated Terraform code is not suitable for open source. Well, not at least until a tool like this uh, achieves critical mass. Um, and that is uh, a ways away. So if you are doing it internally, it begs the question, are you actually architecting your root modules the right way that you need to have templating? And speaking from personal experience, Cloud Posse has had modules that we've developed that we didn't see any way around it. We had to do templating or copy pasta in there until later on we realized we were just doing it wrong or we were thinking about the problem the wrong way and we refactored our root modules and now we don't need to do that. So one of the things that we've accomplished with um, our tool called Atmos is a way of instead breaking down your Terraform root modules into smaller reusable pieces and as a result of doing that, we all, I, I don't know of any case that we've been hamstrung building out infrastructure. And keep in mind, I mean, we're, we're managing thousands and thousands of stacks, dozens and dozens of uh, you know, customers. We, we maintain hundreds of modules. And if we aren't running into these problems, then you know, maybe why, why are other people running into them? So it, where there's a problem, there's a solution. One solution is templating, another solution is re-architecting. I mean, I guess the the one um, argument I would have, uh, uh, you know, counter to your point there, Eric, is that yeah. um, is uh, we are actually running into that with at least at least for the um, the back end, the state back end files, and okay. we've actually just built. We've built templating yeah, yeah. into Atmos yeah, to yeah, do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair point. So, uh, but let's say we do use generation. We do. We have used it. Um, today, it is restricted to the back end, and I appreciate you bringing up that point. We do generate the Terraform state back end because the configuration of it we keep centralized in a YAML configuration. We wouldn't do that if Terraform supported interpolation in the back end. But since Terraform does not support interpolation in the back end, unlike every other construct within the language, uh, we do the generation. So I'd be curious if, they, if, if that is like a formal will never happen ever, or we just haven't figured it out yet.
Uh, anything to add on this topic? Anybody, you know, success stories, failure stories on templating? For, you know? Yeah, I can give a, a failure. <laughs> a failure. <Okay. laughs> I totally agree with what you said. Actually, I've been there trying to do things on my own and then find when you try to have generalized because Terraform patterns is like repeated for different clients, right? So yeah. once you go down the rabbit hole for customizing or specification of the modules or the templates or anything that you are through or even write your own wrappers, then you find the problem that it's not can be general and not suitable. Actually, some of my modules and stuff can't be open sourced because it's too specific. So funny, I ended the same as you doing <laughs> something like Atmos, but like a small Atmos, not that rich. Yeah, Atmos -like. <laughs> yeah. and then uh, try to generalize, stay away of the rubbers with all the respect to the rubbers out there, just to stay with uh, vanilla Terraform. And this give me like the flexibility to just use the same templates, modules for different clients all the way. And then you focus on upgrading these templates and modules instead of just, you know, keep customizing them and adding the flags, features, whatever. So that's my point, actually. And it's a valid one, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one point if I, I'm surprised Matt didn't bring up is uh, templating probably increases the surface area for automated testing, like making it a little bit more complicated to test all the per permutations. And it would also mean that like, if you're doing automated testing with like Terra test that those implementations need to be aware of your templating system and the different variations that that could introduce. Um, anyways, I think, I think it's actually a two way street there because you can probably generate all the permutations from the templates pretty easily to test them as yeah. well, but it definitely makes it more complex yeah. to do so. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. Like if you broke your your code into smaller partials almost, and those were always testable, then you can construct a larger uh, module. You know, based yeah, on I think that uh, I've been thinking about that that pattern actually a lot lately. And the biggest thing that that is a holdback for me or drawback for me is that you can't in a supported way. There's there's no way to to um, to bring together root level uh, at your root component. You can't bring together root level resources uh, and data blocks and everything. Everything has to be part of a module. Um, and then you always need like some glue code at the end. Like, so if you could, if you could somehow remotely load, you know, multiple, um, you know, TF files like into the root of your module, uh, that would actually that would actually make what you just said a lot more um, doable. Yeah. yeah, that'd be kind of interesting. If there was a concept outside of modules that was more uh, file-based um, for imports. Yeah. Uh, from code. Or truly like supporting mixins like we've been yeah. talking about basically, yeah. yeah. Yeah, a mixin pattern for Terraform natively would be cool. Yeah. Actually, uh... <laughs> This is funny. I can give some indication about that, like uh, combining the templates and module. So today we had um, the HashiConf, uh, Hashi sorry, pre-released for ambassadors. And due to we signed N&D, 
Yeah, I was just going to say, make sure you don't violate any NDAs here. Yeah, exactly. But they are working on something very similar to like combining templates and modules. And mm -hmm. also, Eric, you're going to love this. They are pushing some features into the Terraform cloud. So until October, we, can, we cannot say anything more. But yeah, mm -hmm. this is the problem that there is like two district part of Terraform, the templates and the root modules or specific modules, sorry. And they are uh, like gonna introduce something, but it's it's like very basic, but a good start at least, I think. Okay. Well, yeah, I'll be excited to learn more about that. Um, let's, uh, yeah, let's uh, switch gears before we get in trouble. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the next uh, announcement was another little utility from TF Weekly, um, Terraform Weekly which was called TF Summarize. I find this interesting because like back in the day, there was a pretty plan for Terraform um, because if you were like pre-Terraform pre um, 13 or 14, uh, the, the plans were pretty abysmal in Terraform. Uh, obviously <laughs> this was abandoned four years ago, but it was so sweet when it came out because we finally had these very, uh, pretty Terraform plans. Okay, this was actually a different product. Uh, this is different. This is a, a web one. Anyways, um, so what this announcement was when I find my tab, I should just close tabs, how about? I think it's called Terraform Landscape. T was it TF Landscape? Terraform Landscape. Yeah. Terraform. No, it's the first, it's their second tab, TF Summarize. Oh yeah, 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 but uh, like, but the uh, the old one that came out back in the earlier version. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. I thought you were trying to get back here. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> I was doing both, but um, let's see here. So yeah, TF summarize, and this one here will uh, generate three or four different types of outputs on your Terraform plan. Um, it's a little tediously slow. This animated GIF here, but. Uh, so this is what a plan looks uh, like vanilla today. And it supports uh, a, a pretty standardized table view of those changes, which is convenient maybe for GitHub actions that just want to show a summary of uh, changes. Um, so he's going to show that here. So that's that table. Personally, I didn't. I find that a little bit distracting with all the, 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 the lines and columns there. But uh, two of these other views I thought were kind of interesting as well. So one was a, a tree view showing the relationship of the changes and the modules. And the final one was a, um, a full-on graph uh, in text representing uh, the relationship of the modules. I think that graph is kind of interesting where uh, for newcomers to a project, uh, the most common feedback I always hear is, you know, what is the architecture of this module? Or like, what does this actually look like? When you wrote it, it's pretty obvious what all the bits and pieces are, um, but oops, uh, I missed, uh, <laughs> I'm sure you all saw it, but I missed it here. It showed you that tree breakdown, uh, visual relationship of the resources and how they plug in together. Has anyone- yeah, didn't pause. He didn't pause enough on the last frame when he created the demo. So it, so it, it just, very quickly loops back uh, around. <laughs> oh, well. So, you have to screenshot wait for it. it. Wait for it, wait for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Has anyone uh, seen this tool already? Kick the tires on. 
No, but I I will say um, having used Pulumi, I think the way that they they list their changes and everything is much more readable and legible than uh, than either native Terraform or anything that they're doing here. But it, it's very it's kind of it's close to the to that table view without the distraction of all the lines and everything like you said it's much more readable yeah okay here's the drawing here's the drawing wait for it it's coming it's coming bam there it is <laughs> so that was kind of cool um yeah what does the pulumi pulumi plan I, what do they call it like summary yeah that's it yeah it just shows you example there's one i guess Mm -hmm. uh like over on the right uh right second sorry second row it was like second row if you close that again can you go back yeah second row where'd it go no it, yeah that one like that thing on the bottom there yeah that's pretty nice so that gives you just kind of like the tree view but it's in a list view and shows you like this is going to be created this is going to be destroyed this is going to be updated yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I'm surprised that's not something they're continuously kind of polishing a little bit and improving because it, you know, it doesn't, they haven't made many improvements to the output and it's such an important part of the whole process. Yeah. So I, I captured that screen really quick if you want to look at what the graph looks like for longer than two seconds. <laughs> I just I just uh, slacked it to you. Okay, thank you. Or put it in the office hour Slack, I guess. Oh yeah, um, I can do that. All right, next announcement is eh, it's just meh. But anyways, I needed something for AWS. No, so um, if you're using uh, Security Hub and AWS Config, uh, one of the most valuable parts of it are the conformance packs. There's dozens of them. I don't know if it's in the hundreds, but there's at least dozens of them for many of the standards uh, out there. Um, you know, shameless pitch, obviously Cloud Posse has a Terraform module to deploy Security Hub and uh, conformance packs as well uh, for AWS config. Amazon has come out now with another AWS managed uh, conformance pack. Um, they're calling this foundational security best practices. I'm guessing it's uh, you know, aggregating some of the common best practices from uh, the other um, conformance packs that you might find. Uh, well, actually, uh, it, it used to be, um, so all of these things used to be turned on by default in AWS config when you um, when you use Security Hub. And I think now they're, they've explicitly um, extracted them all out into a conformance uh, pack rather than them just turning on by default. That makes a lot more sense then. Well, and so one of the, yeah. One of the things I would like to see though is annoying I think in Security Hub is like they have the st predefined standards for like PCI DSS. Um, I forget what the other two were, the uh, CIS foundations benchmarks. But yeah, and, and foundational security best practices. That's the other oh, one. Oh, that was that, that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So I want, is this is, do you think this is a step then towards being able to bring in more standards into that view that I'm talking about? I'm not sure. I hope so. Technically. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, those are the standards that you're auditing against basically. 
Yeah. Um, they're also like way behind, like in that, um, for example, like CIS only supported, I think still only supports like 1.2 and 1.4 is out for like the actual CIS standard. So, yeah. So there's, a there, there's still a slight disconnect in that conformance packs of, are for AWS config, right? So those are those are setting up a bunch of things that you need to collect in order to meet these best practices for all these things in AWS config. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they translate to an enabled standard within Security Hub that Security Hub is automatically audited. Yeah, against. yeah, yeah. So it's that yeah. last- I think that's- yeah, that, that's the kind of cognitive dissonance in this whole thing. It's like really hard to to get your head around like why they do it that way, which seems kind of weird. Yeah. All right. Anything to add on like, that? Oh, I was just gonna give an example there. So you can you can turn on like the best practice, like the the security, no, was it the AWS <laughs> config um uh conformance pack for HIPAA, mm -hmm. but there isn't there isn't a corresponding like HIPAA, um, you know, standard that Security Hub is is monitoring against. Yeah. So you kind of have to like look at all these things in within config, um, which is which defeats the purpose of why you have Security Hub because Security Hub is supposed to be a place that aggregates all that data and visualizes it and shows you, um, yeah. you know, your your adherence against those standards. So. Yeah, they, the product management there is, uh, they, they need to align themselves and get this fixed. But yeah, I agree with you. It's a pain. Yeah. So what happens is that you'll have, you know, 10,000 checks in there, but you won't understand how they relate to any of the standards you're going for. Because you might be yeah. going for multiple benchmarks for compliance, uh, but they're all muddled together in the same pot. And you don't know uh, how well you're doing in HIPAA compared to... Uh, something else. So HIPAA, you might be contractually obligated to meet while the other st standards you are not. And that's the problem. Okay. Yeah, actually, actually, the, not to split hairs, but HIPAA, you are um, by, if you, if you're in the US, at least you are uh, by, by law obligated, whether or not you've contracted or not, if you handle uh, HIPAA protected data. Right, which is a new so, one. Yeah. But, but there's yeah, yeah. also plenty of, <laughs> that's a good thing, distinction to call out. Like you might not yeah. even know you're subject to it and you could be subject to it. The other is yeah. uh, commonly we talk to customers who want to do it just for uh, optics, basically. We don't need it, but it would make it easier for us to close big whales as customers. So we want to go for it. Yeah. All right. So uh, that, moving on. That, hey, that yeah, something just. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry, two people. <laughs> on um, item six, uh, before you switch over, if you don't mind. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I got uh, got in a bit late. Um, but yeah, item six. Um, what are you basing that on? I'm just curious. Is that the thread about uh, uh, there was one thread on GitHub issues recently where there was uh, a mention that the issue was going to be closed? Yeah, it was closed and it was labeled not tagged. Oh, sorry, not. Okay. 
it was tagged uh, not planned uh and i linked unfortunately i linked uh here somehow i clicked on the wrong thing when i saved the link and i wasn't able to uh pull it up quickly enough but yeah okay yeah i just wanted to mention um i actually opened another ticket about this when i saw that because i felt okay wait a sec you know there's definitely been a good amount of data in that thread yeah. Uh, if you want to look it up, it's uh, 31815. <clears throat> but so I took all the, you know, the, the use cases that were mentioned and, and the table that um, apparently Mark uh, posted and um, uh, <clears throat> came up with uh, kind of a, a specification just to try to, you know, not get caught in the problem of, oh, there's, we don't know what to do, so we won't do anything. Uh, so I proposed a solution and uh, it hasn't been rejected yet. And someone said, yeah, thanks for putting that together. So we'll see uh, what happens. So I, I don't know if, I, if I'd say it's, it's not planned. I'm hoping that they'll actually revisit that <laughs> yeah, at the bottom there. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Okay, interesting. I, I love in the, in the ticket that you just showed, they showed Puppet config as, a, uh, as an example. <laughs> What's that? The the first uh, issue we were looking at that had a table and it has like high high arrow oh. high arrow, which is like puppet like puppets config file right there. That, right. That oh, that, I didn't know that high arrow was. Uh, yeah, puppet. yeah, that's how puppet that's how puppet does config inheritance basically. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Because uh, they mentioned that, that there's a data source for it, and I've seen a provider or something for high arrow. Does it mean? Oh. That natively, um, let's see here. If I'm not mistaken, there you go. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I only know it from like ten years ago when I was doing puppet stuff. Hmm. Interesting. <coughs> All right. Um, then going on to Q and A, how about, so. I would uh, add one more. Oh, yeah, announcement, I, go for it, Vlad. Fargate. Oh, yes, we were gonna talk about that and then that's a perfect segue into Q and A. Uh, I posted the link both in the Zoom chat and I think in office hours and right now in office hours. So um, Fargate uh, container sizes got a lot bigger up to 16 CPUs and 120 mm. gigs. Mm. Wow. Yes, I look right. Yeah, that's significant. Yeah. And I, I also some, saw some announcement about that uh, was a faster scale in operations, but I missed this one. So that's a big announcement. ECS on EC2 scales down faster, but I don't know how relevant that is to folks on this call. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. EKS also runs on Outpost now. That's also a very targeted announcement. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just remarkable at uh, the, the number of things going on um, at a AWS any given uh, week. But most of it is really only exciting to a very niche uh, audience, a lot of these things. But constantly stuff being announced. Um, yeah, so Vlad, you're working on a update to running containers in AWS? 
Yes, nothing to share yet, <laughs> just that it's happening. I okay. worked on it for the last couple of days. It's going to be a larger thing, but the flowchart will hopefully get updated by the end of the year, says me full of hope. We'll uh, see. Any, any the, correlation with reInvent or? No. Mm. Absolutely not. <laughs> it's just I finally got time. <laughs> to work on it for a bit. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, uh, then it's a good segue into one of the questions that I saw in our um, uh, Slack channel, which was this one. I guess we can answer that one first. Um, it was just a standard uh, architectural type of question. Uh, someone asking best ways to uh, approach deploying six .NET applications. Let me see here. So uh, Vinko asks, uh, can I ask an architecture question? I want to deploy six .NET applications that are backed by Postgres uh, SQL. The no, you're saying that backwards, .NET 6. Yeah. It's .NET <laughs> version 6. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> OK, yeah, my bad. My Good bad. catch, Matt, yeah. <laughs> .NET 6, so v6, uh, app, I want to deploy a single .NET 6 application that is backed by Postgres. The application exposes a REST API and also has an internal scheduled process that runs batch processing. I'm torn between splitting up the batch processing from the REST API using a Lambda API gateway for the API and a simple ECS container for the batch processing or having containers for both things, you know, et cetera. I think I'm thinking about provisioning uh, Aurora Postgres serverless too, seems uh, really pricey for now. And I'm also torn between ECS versus EKS. I feel EKS might be overkill for now. So this is where I think it, it's an important thing just to break down, like what is the bigger picture here? Like you've been tasked with deploying this one app and is that the end all be all project done? Nothing in the pipeline, nothing else coming down, no other workloads being migrated. Uh, you know, what is the scale of that thing going to be that you're processing? Uh, how often is it going to change? Do you need to have CICD with it? Do you care if it goes down? Is there going to be monitoring for it? Uh, there's so many other considerations uh, along the way here, but reading between the lines, like just keeping it simple, stupid, what can we get up as fast as possible with the least overhead maintenance? Okay, eliminate EKS altogether. End of story. Like, I mean, you're going to be on the hook for doing major platform upgrades at least every quarter. You know, before you're up and running, you need a, a bunch of controllers, the load balancer controller, and considerations for how the DNS is going to be managed and et cetera. So uh, that leaves us with ECS or Lambda or App Runner, maybe. Um, so ECS Fargate might not be a bad option. Uh, get it up and running quickly with that. Or Lambda, but <laughs> Lambda will... With 16 processors and uh, and 120 gigs of RAM. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and guess what? Now you get 128 <laughs> gigs per task if you want to. Um, yeah. So so that's pretty easy. And then uh, there's Lambdas, but that you, you can't just deploy a vanilla app uh, to Lambda. You're going to have to make some changes to how it works. You talked, uh, it was mentioned about the batch processing. Well, Lambda is great for that and horrible at that. It depends on how long your batch processes run or if you can divide those batch processes into smaller, uh, smaller ones. You're limited on the amount of memory and disk space for those batch processing. So we need to know a lot more on that as well. 
app runners. Actually, uh, so, yep. Actually, for Lambda, you can't have disk space because that Lambda lifetime means that when that lifetime ends, there is no disk space. You, so you need to be completely aware. You have scratch space. The, 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 yeah. Yeah, you have scratch space. You don't have disk space. You, yeah. Your app has to be completely ephemeral, basically. Yeah, yeah. You don't have a persistent uh, uh, disk. Yes. They don't support, do, uh, does, do Lambda support EFS yet? No. No, okay. So yeah, there's really no option for persistence and uh, I think it's limited to 10 gigs. So then uh, you also need to make sure that uh, you factor in, I guess, the download time, the transit time of that combined with whatever data processing. Actually, yeah, that, uh, that, that, <coughs> sorry, that's incorrect support. information. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, I was about to say the same thing. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it does support EFS, but it's very expensive. Go ahead. Uh, what does it yeah. support? Yeah. yeah. EFS. Oh, it does. Okay, awesome. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, that is that's good that they've added EFS is uh, then an option for that if if the cost uh, makes sense. For what you're trying to do. Yeah, the, the the trick there though is that there are some um, there are definitely some rate limits on um, number of connections per second, like to your EFS and and total number of con uh, connections to your EFS, which uh -huh. obviously in a lambda perspective, if you're using it for scale out processing is not the greatest, uh, yeah. you know, it is not the greatest of, of things. Um, yeah. So I was going to make another point too about the, this question here, just really quickly, is that I, I think the biggest dictating factor for for deciding um, of, of whether or not you should split those two things out is um, how the two workloads will be scaled. Um, and I think that if you look at will you scale your front-end processing in a different way than you'll scale your back-end batch processing workloads? Uh, I think that that should be the, the deciding factor on whether or not you you kind of break those out into two processes or they can run on a single Lambda out there. And then, uh, not a single Lambda, a single uh, container is what I meant to say. Um, and then if you're going to refactor it anyway and you're doing batch processing that needs to be like, long running and has lots of steps and um you know needs to store state and doing those things i would highly suggest looking at aws uh step functions uh mm -hmm. for that because they're they're really good um and bring you all the state machine things that you need to, <coughs> to do those things uh vlad awesome discussion i want to add a couple more uh .NET specific thing so everybody's assuming this is linux if it's Windows, ECS on Fargate has Windows support. It's okay. awesome. It's fantastic. Go for it. Uh, that was the first thing. And the second thing is this doesn't sound like a very mature, uh, <laughs> a very mature productized application. So I would just like to mention that AW, the AWS extension for Visual Studio has a bunch of integrations with AWS including deploying stuff. It's not something I would use for anything that's in production, but for getting something quickly up and running, they're pretty good. Uh, but yeah, I would go for App Runner first. Yeah, and if you don't want to use, like for if you need to do some code rejiggering and you don't want to use uh, Stop functions. There's a, a pretty good .NET library out there called 
hang fire um, that that actually works all about. It's doing all sorts of things for backend processing, queuing and and dequeuing, uh, all the things you need to do with persistent storage. So you might want to look at, into that as well. So uh, one option that wasn't mentioned yet was App Runner, or I briefly touched on it, but um, that that is an option that will also deploy your containers, integrate with your VCS, automatically deploy, build and deploy it. Um, but it's incredibly limited on instance sizes, which is unfortunate, and CPUs. Um, Vlad, I'm curious though, uh, you, you have often a bigger, a wider perspective on these things. Uh, is it a viable contender for things or don't even consider it? Yeah, it's super viable. It's, what was it, up to four gigs or two gigs and 25 instances? Yeah, but you I need to. Don't, it's more than enough for a lot of applications. Like I've been running things in production with AppRunner successfully. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. It's only for web services right now. But yeah, yeah it's absolutely lovely. I love it. And yeah, it won't scale to thousands of, yeah two CPUs and four gigs of RAM, which yeah. for a lot of apps, it's way more than enough. It's not gonna be 16 CPUs and 120 gigs of RAM scaling to thousands and thousands of containers, but a lot of applications don't need that. And I've been super happy with AppRun. Like it's still new, so there are some rough developer experience edges, but they're rather minimal, I'd say. Like the pain is minimal and it eliminates a lot of the initial complexity with ECS on Fargate. So AppRunner is easier ECS on Fargate. You don't have to set up an ECS cluster. You don't have to stress with I am task role and I am task init role or whatever it's called, task execution role. That was it. You don't have to stress with security groups that much. BCR, uh, it's easier. It's all integrated. They can also do builds for you. Mm -hmm. I love it. Like, it still needs to grow, but yes, it's a serious contender for a lot of applications. Because this is what I was uh, considering using for um, like a very turnkey Atlantis distribution uh, that would more or less run itself uh, with a minimal infrastructure and resources deployed. Um, one concern was raised that maybe four gigs isn't enough uh, for a uh, for an Atlantis server, but I can't imagine. I can confirm yeah. that four gigs is not enough. <laughs> yeah. okay. uh, it's and the two CPUs might be not enough, especially if you're doing a lot of plans in parallel and applies and stuff. It's going to take annoyingly long. Okay. Like I've usually been running Atlantis in Fargate with eight gigs of RAM. I, okay. I, I have to check, but uh, it's, that's an it's a super easy thing to do yeah. to speed up the CACD pipeline. Just give Atlantis more resources. Mohammed, as you've had your hand up. Yeah, thank you. So I actually am working currently on .NET uh, application with a client, and I can give some of my own experience. First, for AppRunner, seems like very uh, abstract if if uh, if it's about like fine control about your infrastructure, so you need to start with ALB, then ECS cluster, then the surface, the task definition, everything. So it's, it's depend if it's easy, just a Docker file you need to deploy. Yeah, AppRunner is good. But I 
deploy it on ECS Fargate.net using the official Microsoft image based on Linux, I guess, with the .NET 6 SDK. And you, you use something like um, Docker multi-stage uh, building for getting like the optimal image size. And then you do like um, ALB if you need EFS to be like persistent or other thing. But actually we use something else for batching the processes. We use uh, AWS batch. So AWS batch is something like a specific surface from AWS only for batching the processing. It can scale automatically. You don't need to do it on EC2 or ECS. Even you can do it on ECS Fargate, actually. So our application, the backend actually was on ECS and the batching was on AWS batch. Exactly, yeah, this one. So it's a fully managed surface and it can like make your life easy. But instead of EFS, we used S3 bucket. It depends on the application, of course. So we upload some something on S3 bucket, then AWS batch triggered processing it without any headache like doing lambdas or ECS or EC2 even. So that's our experience so far so good with ECS Fargate. I mean, it's running perfect. And um, for, yeah, one note for AppRunner, actually just you need to take care of the limits for the CPU and RAM and just plan your scaling correctly. That's it on the app runner. On the ACS Fargate, you can use, of course, like 8 gig of RAM or something, but depends on the use case, actually. That was my, my experience so far with the application. Thanks, Mohammed. So yeah, I think that was a lot of great ideas there. Uh, that should cover the landscape for you, uh, Vinko, and uh, check out this office hours if uh, you didn't make the call. Um, next question was, um, some, someone asked, uh, any alternatives to run, um, Amazon's private CA, which is incredibly expensive. Uh, it's at 400 bucks a month or so. And let's see here. What was it? Uh, yeah, yeah, here it is. Yeah. So um, at the, but the caveat there was they are um, using it in an IoT context. So you can imagine having, you know, thousands or millions of devices there. So how, how do you easily handle um, the certificate revocation and so forth? Um, Matt, uh, I think you had suggested uh, previous, is this where Amazon's IoT service would probably uh, facilitate that and you don't need to leverage maybe uh, the underpinnings of a private CA to handle all that? I, I think that the IoT service still uses the CA under the hood, but I'd have to, I'd have to double check that to be, to be completely honest, I, I don't remember. Okay. I can probably check it while, while we discuss other things if you give me. Yeah. Anyone else have uh, some suggestions here? Alan, I see you recommended uh, using EC, Easy RSA. Uh, yes. Obviously, sure. though, Easy RSA is easy for managing the CA, but I mean, uh, you, you base, but Easy RSA doesn't have an API around it, right? You have to uh, orchestrate all of that. Yes, you would. But it also manages a CRL. So, as soon as you put a certificate in your CRL, 
EGRS can actually the your your um, certificate authority then basically invalidates your your um, your, your certificate in the CRL and I've used EGRSA in in-house mobile applications in this exact same it, it's quite literally just using OpenSSL under the hood so any standard OpenSSL RSA type certificate is what you're going to get Yeah, so just yeah, go oh, on. Sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say a confirmation for IoT is that it need it needs a certificate authority. You can use Amazon's, but you can use or any other one. But it in and of itself isn't a certificate authority. Okay. Ashit or Volt also should so. Hmm. Yeah. That's not going to be less than 400 bucks a month, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you use the Even if you use... or use the HashiCorp Cloud, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I, yeah, either I've, one. <laughs> I, I've historically, many years ago, written my own API around EasyRSA, so it's not the most challenging thing to do. Um, but for other things, what you need to be aware of in your certificate authority is if you want to follow proper PKI implementation is that your CA should never be exposed. When you're using tools like HashiCorp Vault as your CA, there's a potential that your root certificate is now going to get exposed, which is what you kind of don't want. Um, why, why is that the case? With, I, I didn't follow the... the... Your, your certificate authority should never be, you should never actually be exposing your certificate, your certificate authority's private data in any form. Like the, 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 PK, the PKI standards kind of, you never distribute the key that you're signing your certificate authority with. No one should have access to that. So, but, but in the vault scenario, I mean, the, the key is managed inside a vault and you don't have direct access to that. No, I mean, it, you would be requesting certificates signed by it through an API and using your key, but not the key material of the private. I, I speak under correction, but I believe you would actually get, be able to get access to those to that key. Hmm. Um, I would, I would need to double check on, on how vault handles those keys, but the way that I understand it. Vault would actually also be able. I, I guess you can fix that with uh, Vault permissions, um, and what what is visible with a specific permission set within your Vault. But I do believe that it is also possible to get access to those actual um, certificates and keys within Vault under very specific conditions. All right. Well, there you have a few ideas. Um, check out Vault, check out EZRSA, um, uh, Cert Manager. There's also a conflicting Cert Manager project by Cloudflare for managing certificates, not to be confused with the Cert Dash Manager project. Um, I know that Cloudflare has been doing a lot of things with um, CA management. They had the CF SSL project for some time, and it looks like that has then been spun off into these other projects as well. 
All right, we are at time for today. Um, unless there's any quick questions we can get to. Um, any quick questions before we move on? Real fast, real yep. fast question. If you are uh, developing an application for, um, say, an enterprise, and the expectation is that you deploy your stuff into their enterprise, what is the, uh, where's the layer of, I guess, boundary layer between the modules that they have internally for their Terraform, for instance, shared VPCs and all that stuff, uh, and where I come in with my existing application? Like, where is there like a standardized, like, this is now enterprise, like, plane, which I have to cross, or? I guess that, that's kind of the question. Uh, I think it's really hard to answer in the abstract or generally. Uh, it would largely come down to, uh, they should be telling you, like the deliverable is like an ECS task, in which case your deliverable could be a module that deploys it. Matt Calhoun, were you saying something? I, I was actually just gonna say your layer diagram is actually probably a good reference here um, and point to like, you know, where enterprise you know what i'm talking about your four yeah oh, my, my four layers of infrastructure yeah 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 and and generally the generally like if the app teams where they where they operate at versus platform teams and enterprises yeah so this is the diagram matt is talking about it's what we refer to as the four layers of infrastructure it's a cloud posse model um the foundational infrastructure, your Amazon accounts, organizations, VPCs, IM architecture, DNS architecture, and so forth is the bottom layer, definitely not your responsibility. The next layer is your platform is how services are continuously or are consistently rather delivered. Uh, ECS, EKS are common examples there. Um, again, not your responsibility, probably if you're just delivering an application. Shared services, things like your GitHub action runners and things like that, again, not your responsibility. You need to assume all of that stuff exists. So the final layer here are your applications. So the deliverable there, what you're responsible for doing is going to be knowing what the platform is. You're not gonna deliver an ECS task to a shop using EKS, right? Um, and, and if they're using EKS, are they using Terraform for those deployments? Or are they using Argo CD or Flux? Because that's gonna change the deliverable. Uh, the deliverable might be a Helm chart, for example, uh, and a container if you're using a Kubernetes app. So uh, questions I would ask are, you know, what are some of those assumptions that you can make uh, before proceeding down that path? Yeah, and, and, and all the things around like observability and logging yeah. and all that stuff, they'll have enterprise standards for that that you'll need to opt into. And they'll, usually they'll give you like, Here's the guideline of how we do apps in here. You have to write the standard out. You you need to expose a health endpoint that's on slash health Z. You have to do X, Y, and Z. And then you just like, yeah, exactly. Like 12 factor. It's like 12 factor plus basically. Yeah. But like there's there'll be some contract that their platform expects, and then you'll just have to deliver to that. Yeah, we have uh, the Cloud Posse. If you just Google uh, 12 factor app checklist, this is our practical interpretation of 12 factor in today's world um, in, in what we think about it. A lot of the things that uh, Matt just said. Very interesting. Yeah, never deployed to prod in a uh, big enterprise before. So they've also never used GKE before. So oh. that's, that's, the, uh, okay. that's the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that might be a little bit early then in the in their process there. 
Right, Brilliant. Thanks. Thank you everyone so much for your time today. Uh, that wraps it up. Uh, we got to be mindful of everyone's calendar. I want to get you uh, to lunch or your next meeting or to bed, depending on where you're calling from. If you haven't yet subscribed to our YouTube channel, go to youtube.com slash cloud posse. Again, youtube.com slash cloud posse. We post all of our episodes there. You can also head over to podcast.cloudposse.com if you prefer to listen that way. All of our office hours are syndicated. Connect with me on LinkedIn by going to linkedin.com slash in slash Osterman. And I'd love to connect with everyone in our community. All the links and all this cool stuff that we come across, we share in our newsletter. If you go to newsletter.cloudposse.com, you can subscribe to that. And lastly, if, uh, if you're just curious about what we do over here at Cloud Posse, uh, maybe want to hire us, very easy process. Go to cloudposse.com slash quiz and uh, fill out some questions and book a time with me directly. So talk to you soon. Have a great rest of your week and talk to you next week. Bye.